Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Articulating Insight podcast, the podcast where I usually talk to interesting and creative people from around the internet to get their insights on the fundamental principles of art and all that. But today's a little different, um, just because I felt like doing another solo episode, like the the first episode I did with the introduction, just because I've had had some stuff on my mind lately, and I also couldn't really find a guest in, uh, in what I thought was a timely manner. So I was just like, you know what? I got some stuff in my mind. Why don't I just shoot off for a bit and go off about a few things that have been uh, that have been running around in my head. So, so far, I got two big things I want to talk about. And we'll see how long those take to get through and whether I'll have to rant on about some other stuff uh, for the end. But, um, yeah, they're two pretty different things. The first one is pretty, like, mostly grounded in real life, although I guess there's some connections to art in it. And the second one is maybe, like, really connected to the semantics of art. And the first one's kind of more real, and the second one is something people would think is more, uh, a little silly, less substantial. But I'm going to try and go through both, and we'll, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what, kind of, what kind of insights will be articulated this episode. So, I have little headlines for the two main rants I want to go through. So, this first one is how driving tests set me up to be the worst driver of all time and how the pleasure of being robbed set me free. And we'll figure out what that means. So, I'm going to start off with an anecdote that plagued me for quite a few years. So, um, I have always had a really shitty connection to driving um the the first like encounter i had with driving was when my mom was like okay we're gonna uh, oh wait no you know what it starts before that so i just remembered my first driving test the theory like in, i don't know whoever's listening to this from wherever in canada in alberta you have to take a um when you're 14, you can take a theoretical driving test, which is just, you just fill out a test on a computer, like in the, in the kind of DMV office, and you, if you get, um, I think, if you get less than five wrong, you get a learner's permit, which means you can drive with your parent around. So, I, I was like a pretty smart guy in school, like I had really high marks, I was good at testing, so I wasn't too stressed about it. Um, I think I had found the kind of like, you know, the government gives out a little driving guide online that you're supposed to study before this test. I think I looked over it once or twice, and I was planning, I think over this weekend on Sunday, to go do the test, and on Saturday I was going to go through everything and make sure I took all the notes. But I think it was either Friday evening or Saturday morning, um, my mom was like, you know what, you're good at testing, um, let's just go, let's just go write it. Let's just go write the thing. I was like, hey, do you think I'm ready? And he's just like, yeah, sure, why not? It's, it's easy. It's just a driving test. So I go in there, and I'm doing the test, and I'm doing all right, but they, like, tell you every time you get a question wrong. If you get over five wrong, it just kills the test, and you're done. Um, and so it's, like, multiple choice questions and stuff. So I'm going through, and I start getting questions wrong, and I'm so close. I'm, like, three questions at the end. I can only get one more wrong. And I'm, like, caught in this kind of yellow light question. It was screwing me up. And I selected an answer, and it was wrong. And I would gotten them all wrong. And I, I was in, like, a, a hormonal mood that day. I was 14. I was still, you know, going through all that stuff. And um, it hit me in a bad way. Something about just being so close, just to almost having that. And then I failed that, um, 
the test. And I walked out, and I was just like, I failed the test. And the, the lady at the front, she's like, oh, okay, yeah, no problem. You can take it again soon. Um, we had to pay 100 bucks for it just to take the test, because that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> so we go out in the car, and I'm sitting next to my mom, and for some reason, I just start crying so bad. I'm, like, screaming, crying. And... Um, yeah, me and my mom get home, and I, I, we had this this massive argument. I think it was just like one of the worst arguments I ever had. I don't even remember what it was about. I think I just, um, something about how I didn't deal with it well or whatever. And it was a really shitty day. It was like one of the shittiest days of my whole childhood. Um, just writing this stupid driver says, I don't even. I, I think it just hit me so bad that like this is something everyone does, and I just I couldn't figure it out. Even though, because. I guess everyone does it through studying the fucking book, which I didn't do. I looked over it once or something before, and I, I thought I could do it. Um, so, yeah, anyway, just the fact that it was this publicly mandated thing. And I'd done all these really specific things, like hard math questions and stuff in school. Even though, like, I mean, fucking middle school, it's not, like, nothing hard. But it still, it was, like, it was something publicly mandated that, like, everyone could do that I couldn't. And I know friends who had done it the first time, and it pissed me off that I couldn't do it. Um, so, yeah, a few weeks later... Um, I actually read through the material, go in, I get past the test, I got my learners. Then the first time I go to drive with my mom, we go to this country road, we're driving slow, I'm driving like a, a good bit, and we're trying to figure out, you know, acceleration, braking, all that, like, you know, all the lights and the fucking wipers and turning and all that. And then a fucking dog just runs out of someone's farmhouse, runs up to the car and starts jumping on my door when I'm going, you know, pretty slow. I'm probably going like, you know, 30 clicks or something. And this, like, I was just fucking, it freaked me out, freaked me out so much. And I think that was the only time I ever drove with my mom too. Um, cause she's a, she's a pretty nervous person like I was. And I, I think she was always kind of nervous to drive with me to begin with. And then something about like this, that experience, it wasn't just the dog. It was a lot of things. But it was just... It always felt like there was bad omens hanging over me every time I tried to drive. So I was really nervous. I didn't drive much with my learners until... I, I don't think I drove much at all like with my learners. Like after that... The initial dog experience. I mean, a couple times after. But until I was 16 and I could go get my full license. Where, again, in Alberta, in Canada, um, you have to go take a driver's test. Where they'll mark up to 75 points off of shit you do bad, and you have to do like a parallel park, a hill park, you know, general driving shit, drive around, you'll go to uncontrolled intersections and stuff. And so, I knew I wasn't going to do great in that, so I went to a driving school, um, or like a, yeah, like a little, you know, summer driving school where they have a theory portion um, in, in a class where they just, you know, reiterate all the stuff from basically the theory portion of the test, which you wouldn't be, I don't think you're actually tested on, but it's just part. Um, of the driving school and the reason they have that is so they can give a test at the end of the driving school and certify that you know all the rules of the road and all that um, and so that test at the end of that driving school it's like certification that you have and then it helps reduce insurance and they also know about it when you do your driving test and there's also on the road portions of that driving school where you go with a instructor and the instructor sits in the passenger side of the vehicle with their own brake in the special car and um, they drive you around. And I was always super nervous. I feel like if I looked back, I probably... I did totally find the theory portion of the class. Actually, you know, it was a course. I paid attention and I got a really good mark. Um, and then... But with it on, with the, on the road portion, I'm sure that I made the dude probably so nervous. I remember what, there was one time we were pulling into a, ga like a gas station and I messed up the acceleration of the brake, which is like the worst thing you can do. And we were lurched forward and he held on the brake. And he didn't seem to acknowledge it, but I'm certain he knew. Like, how could he not know that I'd just fucking done that? So, yeah, everything about it was making me so nervous. And I, I drove with my dad a, a bunch of times. But the thing was, is when I'm driving with these other people, 
Um, I'm always thinking about what they're thinking of what I'm doing. You know, it's not like I'm not driving practically. Like I'm not driving what makes sense. I'm thinking about what the fuck is the person next to me thinking? What's my dad thinking? What's the driving instructor thinking? And am I following these rules of the road that I still don't really have a good grasp on? And I, I don't know with their experience because they were both like, you know, my dad's an old, like been driving for like, I don't know, at least 30 years, did, like driving for a long ass time, driving instructor probably even more so because this is fucking job. Um, so I'm always thinking about like, what out of their knowledge can I figure out? And I never knew because it was just like this unknowable fucking thing next to me. And it, it pissed me off so much. And that made me so nervous when I was driving because it was just this constant thing of like this unknowing state of am I doing good? Am I doing bad? Am I doing some unknowable fuck up that in their infinite knowledge I wouldn't notice? Um, so it's, it was just every time I drove, it was the worst thing. And so we signed up for the fucking driving test. I practiced my dad a bunch. And I go there, and I'm, I'm just so nervous. But, you know, I've been really nice. I got this really nice old guy. He saw I went to driving school, like, on the forum and stuff. He's like, oh, you went to driving school. Cool, cool. Um, so we go. I fuck up the parallel park, I remember. And which I remember hearing from people was an instant fail. Like, if you hit the curb on a parallel park, you, you, you fail the test. And I did that. And the guy was like, oh, just try again. And I tried it again. I think I got it all right. I got it all right. Like, I don't remember it being great. And then um, I was being just super careful driving. Like any time we came to any sort of intersection, even if the other people had yields or stop signs, I would still slow down and check and stuff like that because I was so paranoid. And he marked me some points off for that. And I just I kept making like weird little little fuck ups that he kept marking me off for. And then eventually, when we park at the end of the fucking test. I park on the fucking curb. Like I'm I literally my my fucking top like front right wheel goes on the fucking curb. And then I just look at the guy and he's like, "You want to fix that?" I'm like, "Yeah." And I back off the curb and park a little better and then he shows me the form and he's just like okay you ha you got 75 points so like you know points are a bad thing he's like you got 75 points off the maximum we allow is 75 and then he goes to circle the, bu the bubble that says fail and then he looks he looks at me he looks at the thing and um he's just like you know what screw it and then he, he passes me and he's, he's like yeah you're passed cool um and then he gives me my uh like you know we go inside and i get my license I get my picture taken i got my license and I, f I felt relief in the moment, but I still, I felt gross. And every time I thought about driving, I thought about that moment where it wasn't my skills, it wasn't any understanding, it was just some weird sense of pity and generosity from this dude that had given me this, this thing. And I felt like I had cheated the system. I felt like I didn't know how to drive. I, I the... the the feeling I, I had of unknowing when my dad and the instructor were in the car were totally valid. And I was unbeknownst to these rules of the road that everyone who drove was conscious of. That's what I thought. Um, and that there was this cloud of unknowing that I had no access to when I regards to driving. So I didn't fucking drive after I got my driver's license for four years. For four years, until I was 20. Um, because... I felt like I was a danger to people because I didn't know what was happening. And then last year, for, I got a job where I had to drive to. And I was like, I have to get a job now. I can't use transit. I mean, I have to drive now. And I have my license. I put it on my resume. I told them I have my license. So I have to do this. And um, so I told my dad about it. My dad's always so gung-ho. He went and bought a car for me. Like, I mean, I, I paid for it, but he found a car for me to buy I swear I paid for it. That wasn't a Freudian slip. I actually fucking paid for my car um, because I'd had prior co-op jobs and stuff and I had money saved up. 
Um, so yeah, I got this car, and then um, I remember I went and just drove on my own a few times on the path to work before work started because I didn't know if I could drive, and I was still under this impression I couldn't drive. I drove by myself. I threw threw on some tunes on the on the like uh, on the little CD player, and I was just like. I, I think I'd actually driven with my dad a couple times before that just because I didn't trust myself to go driving by myself after four years. Um, and I was still really nervous whenever I was driving with him and I made some stupid mistakes. I kept kicking myself over. But that first time I drove by myself, it was like this door unlocked. And I realized it wasn't that I didn't know anything about driving. It was just that I wasn't... I was trying to access this wizard knowledge that you can only gain through experience and I was denying myself that experience by thinking I didn't have it so it was like a self fucking self-destructive prophecy or something so when I drove on myself it was like driving is a practical thing like you drive to get from A to B um and I was just like you just you turn your turn signal tell other people you're turning you you stop before you turn and then you turn you don't have to fucking think about all the time about all these fucking rules that are in the fucking driving theory and shit like that i mean absolutely you should try to be cognizant of the rules of the road because there's reasons for that and like you know shit like roundabouts stuff like that can be dangerous if you don't know them but as long as you pay attention and you know treat it functionally you will be okay and like if you're being cognizant of all these rules you will be okay because driving is not a fucking field of unknowing. It's a tool. It's a fucking tool. And the reason I, I, in the title, I bring up how the pleasure of being robbed set me free was right around that first time I drove, I watched Josh Safdie's first feature, The Pleasure of Being Robbed. And that film has a sequence where the main girl steals someone's car keys and manages to find their car and get in, and Josh Safdie plays her friend who's also there, and he knows how to drive, but she doesn't. But she gets into the, the driver's seat of this car, and together, they just, like, he just kind of gently leads her to figure out how to drive. She did not have a driver's license. She didn't go to fucking driving school. She didn't take the theory test. She figured out, like, what the wheel does, what the accelerator does, what the brake does, practically. And then she figures out how to drive. She... She scratches a few people's cars, um, but, like, eventually she gets on the road, and they just go on a fucking road trip, and it works out, and it's fine. And, like, I mean, that's obviously... I don't mean to condone stealing or anything, because that's not the point. The point is, is that she got in a car, figured out the functions of everything in the car, then used it for its purpose. And the thing is, is that the driving test exists for a reason. The driving tests... I mean, in a cynical way, it exists for the DMV and the government to cover its ass and be like, oh, there's shitty drivers on the road. It's not our fault. We have this test that weeds people out, and it's a hard test. We do advanced driving techniques. I mean, not advanced, but like, you know, not everyday shit, like parallel parking and un uncontrolled intersections and roundabouts and stuff like that. We test these extreme cases, and it's not easy to pass, necessarily, and it wasn't easy for me to pass. Um, I mean, it technically was easy for me because I did pass, but I mean, whatever. No, it wasn't, it wasn't easy. I had to work at it. Um, and so this system is in place to cover their asses. This system is not in place to make you a great driver. If anyone fucking goes around in their day-to-day -day thinking about every single fucking thing on the driving theory, about every single, like, logistic about, like, oh, you turn a corner and you have to stay in this lane unless it's a parking lane and all that. Like, that stuff's intuitive. If you consciously think about that stuff, like, 
if you follow book like or letter by letter the system uh, of like you know the driving test and all that stuff you would either a go insane or b be the most douchey fucking human and have like well like the thing is it's not feasible and if you want to drive to fucking work you have other shit on your mind you're fucking 6 a.m in the morning driving to somewhere you're not gonna be thinking all that stuff and that's not the point the system isn't to encourage that because that would be insane the system is to provide a gatekeep so that if they're shitty drivers it's not the system's fault technically and so you can't fully internalize that stuff and i feel like when I saw pleasure being robbed and these ideas started coming to mind and I was driving by myself and stuff, it kind of unlocked for me the problems that, like, a lot of people have. Like, there are so... Like, I mean... There are so many people who don't go into post-secondary, who don't even drive and all that stuff because they think there's this cloud of unknowing that they can't get through. That there's something else that they're not equipped to deal with that is keeping them from the, the thing. And it's the thing is that when I was in university, like I'm in, I'm in an engineering program um, at my university and the classes there are really hard. Like I'm, I'm like, I, I'm not trying to toot my own horn, trying to say like, oh, I went through the, the hard thing. It's, it's known, they're hard classes. And I was so, so nervous. I'm in a co-op program, so I have work terms first without my, um, my academic uh, course. And, um, the, so, like, after my, um, second year of academic courses, I was supposed to go out and, uh, like, work. And before that first work term, I was so scared, because I was just like, I don't know everything from my classes. These classes are supposed to prepare me for the workforce, and I haven't fully internalized everything for them. I'm gonna be so fucked. I'm gonna be so unprepared. I was so nervous going to my first work term. And I went on my first work term, and it's like, it's like any job. It's like you go in there, you figure out the specificities of the job, and then you do the job based on your orientation stuff you received. I mean, there's been a few occasions where I have to use like certain equations and stuff, and like, you know, some background knowledge from my courses. But on the whole, I could have not done those courses and done maybe about the same job that I was now allowed to through these courses. So the thing is, is that those courses aren't meant to exclusively prepare you for that job. I think they were very helpful in instilling a strong work ethic and helping me, you know, communicate with people and all those sort of soft skills. But there are other ways to gain that other than through these fucking, like, ass-hard courses. Um, ass-hard. Great fucking adjectives here from the, the public orator of Zane. Um, but <laughs> the thing is, is that... But that's not the intention of the classes. The intention of the classes are to provide a gatekeep to these pretty high responsibility positions. You know, like with an, an engineer, things can go wrong. If you do your job incorrectly, things can go wrong. And if things do go wrong, the institution doesn't want to be blamed for those things going wrong by letting the pe not people through. So it's literally just meant as a gatekeep of like driving. It's not our fault. Um, we have provided this thing that is hard for people to do to get through. And therefore, we've done our job in instilling a sort of integrity to this discipline or something. Like, quote-unquote integrity. Um, but the thing is, the integrity isn't co like correlated to actual skill. I know tons of people um, that I've met through my engineering courses who 
are genuinely committed to the craft a thousand times more than me. That's their passion. That's all they think about is building, creativity, problem solving, and all these really practical senses that relate directly to their jobs. And in a job setting, they fucking excel. They work so well with other people. Their intuition for these uh, practical applications is so great. But they don't test well. When it comes to a test, for one reason or another, be it anxiety or just their brain not being wired in exactly that way, they get worse marks than people who are not as good at those jobs. And that's a problem. And that's a problem for people in high school who may not be wired for something that broad. Because there is a very specific mind for testing. And there's a very specific mind for working and uh, I mean a profession so it's just such a bummer that people can be discouraged by these gatekeeps that are set up in place which make logical sense from a really broad perspective but if you look at these individuals that are being filtered by these things when they really shouldn't be and are being filtered from things that could they could excel at and be the best at that's really upsetting but the thing is I don't expect the system to change because like I said it makes sense under the current setup of our society as it is, these things make sense and they've been built up over centuries for certain reasons and uh, as an individual expecting them to change and then just waiting for that, it's going to harm you in the long run. So what you have to do as an individual is figure out if you're being gatekept for reasons that aren't related to your ability to do something you know just in the way that you shouldn't think like me that i couldn't drive because i didn't know how to do a driving test that's ridiculous i didn't know how to drive and i do now and i do fine if you think that you can't go into a post-secondary thing because you don't test well but you know there's something you love to do just grit your teeth through the experience and hopefully you can get through it because if you can get through that, that's all it is. Don't think it's about some cloud of unknowing or some sort like like something outside of your control. If you can manage to get through those tests, which I mean, I I, I hate to like I hate to say that that's like the solution because it's not easy. And I'm lucky that I've been able to test well through my post secondary because if it was based on practical job whatever, I'm sure I'd be put way lower than some of my peers that just simply don't test as well which is totally unfair but don't be discouraged by what you think is something outside of your control you know and i mean it is outside of your control but don't be a victim to it it like just for like a basic analogy of what i'm saying if you think if you all the time you think about building and structures and like the way a house is set up and all this stuff related to architecture but you didn't do great in your math classes in high school fucking try anyway and just figure out ways that you can manipulate the system to your benefit through school and if you can manage to somehow scrape by and get that degree not with the best marks just get an architecture degree and, and find some way to get a job through manipulating a different system of interviews and applications, then you're on your way to realizing a, a place for you, you know? Like, like a, a job that you're suited for. And don't let these stupid fucking systems that are meant to self-justify themselves keep you from that. That's, that's what I mean to say there.
really long-winded way to say with a lot of analogies. Uh, it was just a big revelation I had recently. And, um, I don't know, I hope there was some semblance of, uh, of help there. Um, but to tie this to art, with art engagement, I feel like a lot of people... I mean, to bring it back to a personal analogy, which I feel like is the best thing I can bring to the table, because it's the thing I know most about. Um, when I was first getting into art, I fucking loved, like, animation and, and like, dipshit stuff. Like, I love, like, with my mom, I'm watching fucking... Oh, I'm trying to think of just, like, d dumb movies. Just, like, like Pixar movies. Like, Pixar isn't necessarily dumb, but, like... Ch children's movies and stuff like that or not even children's movies but just like simple simple movies and then suddenly when I started going online more seeing all these the film canon and all these big charts I was like oh I have to watch fucking artsy movies with my mom so I show my mom like Persona I watched Persona with my mom I watched fucking Three Women with my mom I watched so many artsy movies Oh, so many artsy movies with my mom. And she didn't, and she hated it. And I wasn't even fucking trying with it that much. It was cool, but I didn't know why. And it's good, it was good to kind of broaden my horizons like that, I guess, a bit. But at the end of the day, it was like, I mean, I just, I just fucking, I just got finished watching D episodes of Demon Slayer with my mom, and I had an awesome time. I'm just glad I've, I've moved past the point where I feel like I have to force this idea of good art on everyone. Like, I was getting pissed at my mom. It's like, oh, you don't get Persona or Three Women because uh, b because you're brainwashed. And these are actually great films. And you have to look past these things. It's like, she was never going to like those films. That's not her sensibility. And for the vibes, I, I, don't, like, I would rather on a, on a stupid night go and watch, like, like on a night where I'm just want to relax, watch something else, you know? So... Don't let the preconceptions of, like, this is artsy cinema keep you locked out, you know? Like, don't feel like you have to fucking watch Bellatar and Ingmar Bergman and all that shit. Even though like, there's good stuff in there, absolutely, don't feel like that's all you need to watch. Don't feel like you have to engage with these foreign movies. Find your own sensibility. Go Look through the canon to find what you're interested in. So uh, don't stagnate in the comfort zone, obviously, but... Find your sensibility and don't feel the need to conform to that. Which is, you know, shit I went off in the first episode. It's just, it's the same way it's a gatekeep, you know? Like, the, the same way the driving test or post-secondary institutions work, like I just covered. Um, the highest-rated letterboxed films and, like, the preconceptions regarding foreign and old films are, uh, I feel like, what what's become that in the art scene. And don't let that think you don't get art because you don't get these certain movies. Uh... Find your your own path of I care about these films. Like your call boyfriend in uh, episode uh, three, I think it was of this podcast. He he found like he was going through all the Kurosawa's Bergman and stuff. And the end of the day, what he likes watching now is like Scream and uh, early Joss Whedon stuff and um, Kevin Williamson. That's what his sensibility was, and he's doubled down on that now. And I think his reviews and his insights are way better as a result. Not to downplay what he said, what he said before, but now I have a reason to go to his opinion because I mean I can go to a thousand people for insights on Kubrick and Kurosawa and all that stuff, but for insights into fucking dangerous behavior and gossip and stuff like that. I'm going to go to your call boyfriend now. Who else am I going to go to? And he's got a great personality and all that stuff. So that's, like, that's where you find 
the real art engagement and the real art critique is through that personal experience and not just conforming to what you think good art is because that's that's different for everyone yeah i mean i i think that's the end of my first rant there i think that's the end of rant number one what time are we at we're at um, i'm at about 28 minutes now um let's see where the second rant brings us which is titled corporate soullessness and how you can work with the system to get better mainstream entertainment so i'm going to compare a few main works here that is the video game fortnite the new film the suicide squad space jam 2 or like you know the new space jam movie and avengers movies just in general so good people would lump all those works together as being indicative of what mainstream entertainment has become as soulless corporate product just coasting off ip familiarity and not anything cool original or groundbreaking however if you shit on all these works equally for that same broad reason, I feel like that's misguided because I feel like all four works I just mentioned are vastly different in terms of what they do within that mainstream entertainment framework and to just rail against the system isn't going to accomplish as much as nudging it somewhere. So let's get to the specifics. So for example, Fortnite is a game I'd always thought I would hate. I always thought it was just this mainstream corporate soulless shooter, the most generic thing ever, that was coasting off brand familiarity and just some weird marketing tactics that happened to get out of this massive player base. And then some friends were fucking playing it. I was like, you know what? I'll download Fortnite for free. I'm going to play some goddamn Fortnite with my friends. I'm going to chug jug and get the fucking Vic with my friends in Fortnite. And I downloaded it and I had the most goddamn fun I've had with a game in a long ass time. I don't even play video games that much anymore just because I thought I just didn't give a shit. And this is the most fun I've had with friends since like I first started playing League of Legends. This, like, the way that Epic Games has streamlined this game, it just shows an incredible sensitivity to the way these games flow. Like, in the way I, I played PUBG a bit. And it was fun intermittently, but there was a lot of downtime, and like it, I could see the appeal to that, but it wasn't for me. But Fortnite just has so many elements to ready this, or to remedy this, that is. Be it like the revival trucks when you're playing with friends, or just the, the super quick matchmaking times, and just the way everything in the game is just, like, you're just constantly in it. It is a great, it's greatly streamlined for investment. And, the, like, even the way it has, like, these immediate pick-up-and-play, like, you know, obviously the Battle Royale with, like, uh, all, all the, the way the shooting feels and stuff, it's just very easy to pick up and just get into a game and play a quick round and go do something else or whatever. Um, and then there's stuff that rewards a lot of replaying. Like, the, like I, the building system might not be the most in-depth, but there is stuff to master there, and there's serious mechanics behind it and all that. And even the little quests and stuff they keep updating and stuff, which are totally optional, and you can just pick up and play and not even give a shit, or you can try and, like, vary it up with these quests and stuff. I just think, I was like, what's wrong with this game? Why, why, like, why is there a big hate boner on for it when... It's a really well-done Battle Royale multiplayer game. I mean, it's just a really well-done multiplayer game in general. Like, I haven't had that much just instant fun with friends in a long time. And the way it uses existing IPs 
is totally tangential and just kind of like a bonus to that. Like, if, if I'm playing the game and I get fucking gunned down by Rick, fucking Rick and Morty, it's funny. I think it's fucking funny. I'm not playing the game because I hope to get gunned down by Rick from Rick and Morty. I'm playing the game because it's a well-made game, and then there's other stupid shit like Rick and Morty and fucking Travis Scott and Ariana Grande in there. It's it's just, it adds to the experience, and like, it's solely an additive way, and it's not acted as like a way to replace the experience, and I don't see a reason to rail against that, personally. If the game's aim is just really stupid, fun entertainment, it's done its job super effectively, what's worth railing against that? I think there's always a place in media for stupid, fun escapism and entertainment. So if something's good at that, I don't think we should say that it should do something more. When there's a place for both serious, thoughtful works and stupid mainstream fun stuff uh, in, in the media world, to me. But that's not to excuse something. I mean, I guess it doesn't even imply an excuse for it, but whatever. Compared to to Space Jam 2, like, you know, the new Space Jam reboot, that film is dog shit. The film, it fails on every goddamn level. Its humor is so out of touch. Like, when it, it... Regardless of the shoehorned in, like, modern memes or whatever, it's written like a fucking boomer Facebook meme. It's like someone took a fucking stupid boomer minion Facebook meme or a stupid boomer Looney Tunes Facebook meme and turned it into a fucking movie. It's the... They had a fucking can't touch this joke in 2021. No one on the writing team gave a fuck. No one on the writing team has any semblance of what humor is. If you compare this to Looney Tunes Back in Action, which is still, I, like... It's a compromised film, but there is a feeling that there was a sensitivity to what the Looney Tunes were in that fucking movie. If you compare it to even Space Jam, a movie that doesn't really get what the Looney Tunes were about like in their, in their characters and their humor, but it, it has a weird esoteric feel of its own, not even just through its datedness, but I feel like there, it's got a really surprisingly fun soundtrack. The, the, like the way it's paced and stuff, it just it has something more esoteric going on. It's not a great film, but it's a little more unique. Well, actually, it's a lot more unique compared to the new Space Jam, especially. And um, an example an example that just came to mind is even the Three Stooges reboot with the, the Farrelly brothers uh, directing that. That film, it's like the fucking Three Stooges come alive again in that movie. Like, that, it's some of the most committed, insanely, like, perfect comedic performances I've seen in a film especially like of the 2010s especially but like i don't know i think it's some of the best comedic performances i've ever seen it is so like committed to this stupid sense of comedy where everyone behind that film it feels like knew what the stooges were about and were so committed to bringing that vision forth and you could not find a better opposite example than space jam a new legacy or whatever the fuck it's called like it's a film with no sensitivity to any portion of what it's claiming to be re-representing it's the animation looks so bad the animation looks so bad the fucking segment with the, the superman or whatever it looked like a fucking student film it everything in that film fails so bad and these are like you know pretty nitpicking complaints like oh the animation didn't look good and all that like it, those would all be forgiven if there was a central sensitivity to whatever it's bringing forth but there is none 
There's clearly none. To me, it is unquestionably it's none. And that's, this is a film I am totally fine to dogpile on, despite it receiving a great deal of ire, well-deserved ire already, because it is an example of everything you can do wrong when making a work of art. And so we shouldn't hold to the same standard something like Fortnite, which Fortnite does something well. Fortnite is fun. It's good at what it does as being a stupid escapist battle royale shooter game. Space Jam 2 is not effective as being a Looney Tunes movie, a comedy, um, a, a kids movie. It does nothing right. It fails. And that's something worth railing against. And it, But the reason that film made money, the reason the film got released even, the reason that film got made with millions and millions of dollars, think about that, millions, and like, I think probably, I mean, unquestionably tens of millions of dollars were put into Space Jam 2. I don't know the exact numbers. Think about how much money that is. Why would you invest that much money in something that's dog shit? And the reason why was because people know Space Jam, people know Looney Tunes, people know fucking LeBron James. That's why that movie got made. And that's a tendency worth railing against. Not something like Fortnite. And even... I was kind of conflicted on in me supporting the new... The Suicide Squad movie. Because... I'm not supposed to like superhero movies. I talk about the MCU a lot and how I don't like those movies. But I, wa I went and saw Suicide Squad with some friends just because they were going. And the movie looked good. It had a lot of room to breathe for its performers. Like, where every performer has these chance to express themselves comedically and dramatically. That it's giving them a lot of space. And it has emotional arcs for its characters. Like, they're really simple emotional arcs. But, like, I mean, the most obvious example is, like, the rat girl. Who I, you know, I never heard of. No idea. I mean, I hadn't heard of really any of the characters in the movie beyond, like, the most basic level. But there was a, an arc there. And I, I actually was emotionally invested in this fucking movie. And I was like, I'm having a good time. I'm having fun. This movie... It's engaging me. I, I wasn't... It didn't feel its length. It felt like I was just watching a movie, and I had a good time, and then I left. And I was like, that did what it was supposed to do really well. And I never felt like that from an Avengers movie. Because the Avengers movies, to me, fail like that on every level. The films, to me, are not visually appealing. The, the films do not give its performers room to breathe much as, at all, to me. Especially, like... Compared to the Suicide Squad, which gives a lot of room. And there are no emotional arcs. There's nothing I can latch onto that resonates with me personally in those films. And maybe other people feel differently. I'm just saying, to me personally, I'm not going to support those Avengers movies because they failed. So the problem, the Suicide Squad and Avengers movies are corporate products. They are undeniably films made by giant corporations to make money. But if we just discredit all those movies on principle, you're doing a big discredit to the people working on these movies that are trying to preserve things. Because, I mean, you could take any fucking... Like, if you take an A24 movie, A24 is a corporation. A24 wants to make money. Anyone making a movie, because movies cost so much fucking money, want to make money. Why are we so concerned about, this is a blockbuster, I can't like it. If we work with the system, if every fucking Marvel movie was like The Suicide Squad... I wouldn't feel the need to rail against Marvel movies. I don't think there'd be a big backlash against superhero movies. Superhero movies aren't bad because they're superhero movies. Marvel fucking 
cinematic universe movies are bad because they're not well-made movies. And that's the fucking thing of it. And what people are trying to do through figuring out why these movies get made and stuff, that's why they rail against superhero movies, because that's why they got made. That's why they're bad. And why, well, why they're bad is because stupid people got a hold of them. But why they got made, despite stupid people working on them, was because they were coasting off pre-existing IPs. And that's the, that's the, the problem. But you can't l throw that against every movie that has a pre-existing IP. And it's the same thing I was talking about with Jay in episode four of this podcast, trying to remember what, um, when I was saying that they shouldn't shit on soul because of what they view as the infantilization of culture. The problem to me with that is that shittier works get made that are coasting off not necessarily nostalgia bait but just like an infantilization that are coasting off something besides their individual merits. Um, but with something like Soul where it's a film that I think is valid from any perspective, from an animation perspective, it's still pushing forward these cra the crazy shit Pixar's always doing and from a thematic perspective I feel like there's a lot to delve into that's very constructive there to me. I, I'm no problem supporting something like that and I'm no problem supporting something like The Suicide Squad which is it an effective piece of entertainment? And there's totally a place for that. So, yeah, that's uh, just thoughts I was just working out there. Um, how, how far are we into this? Okay, we got some good mileage out of those. We got some good mileage out of those two um, those two rants. Now now we're freestyling. Now we're going off the notes, uh, off anything I'd kind of accumulated over these past couple weeks. And now we can just kind of do some reflection. Maybe we can do some reflection on the podcast. Maybe um, and go look looking back on each episode. Um, so okay, the introduction it it does what it does. There's some cool stuff there. I haven't re-listened to it. Who knows? Um, it it's gotten the guests that have been on this podcast on the podcast debatably because I've said it to them. So it's done something. Uh, <laughs> episode two with Josh. That's a cool episode. It's it's really weird that that's the first one because it feels like it's such a weird episode because he goes off on a big rant at the start, which is like great because he's so articulate and passionate. And then we get in our little, our little back and forth by the end. Um, it's something interesting. I again I haven't revisited it since I edited it, but I remember having a good time. I still talk to Josh. He's so cool. He showed me his new short film, and it was so good. Oh my god, it was so good. Um, fuck it. You know what? I'm going to use this platform. Link in the description for Josh's short film, Failing Moons. It is phenomenal. It is the best mix. Like, a student film can be two things, I feel like. Um, primarily when you aren't in film school or anything. Like, if you're just, like, in high school or, you know, like, like out of high school, but just, like, with friends... To me, it's easiest to make two things. One is a stupid buddy movie. Like, not necessarily like in the traditional definition of buddy movie, but like you're hanging out with friends and you have your in-jokes and the way your friends act and you exaggerate that and make unexaggerated, silly, fun work to kind of preserve this kind of sense of comedy you have at this time and just kind of show around and have a, a fun time. Or you can make some weird, abstract, experimental, like, 
filming lights in your house flailing around, crazy, artsy shit. Which, I, I tend to have problems with a lot of the time, because a lot of times people just film shit and they don't really know what they're doing, and it doesn't seem to be coming from a sensitivity, but just seems to be coming from some preconception that, you know, Stan Brackage is all you can hope for in the art form, so film lights and shit like that, which I feel like can be a dangerous tendency. But what Josh does is he combines those two elements and makes the coolest shit ever. He makes... His experimental shit feels actually informed by personal insight. Like, I mean, I know he's been a fan of, like, weird, abstract, and structuralist film forever. But, um... He manages to channel that in such a cool way. He has so many cool editing and effects and shit like that. And then he makes an amazing fucking buddy movie. Like, in interspersed with, the, like... And they work symbiotically. Like, interspersed with these weird experimental portions are his friends saying weird, dumb shit that they commit to. Like, every every one of his friends takes on this weird, like, um, elevated persona of, like, you know, um, over-exaggerated shit, and they own it. Like, there's no self-consciousness. There's no feeling of, like, oh, I'm kind of in a role I'm not comfortable with. No. They all fucking own it. And it's so fun. And it adds this levity to stuff. So the experimental portions you can just appreciate without feeling like this kind of overbearing artiness. And you don't feel alienated from the stuff that's probably a lot of in-jokes of the friend stuff. Well, just because, A, it's so fun to watch them just be so committed and own it and it's funny. Um, but also because you have some sort of weird framework with these experimental portions. It's awesome. Go check it out. I had a great time watching it. Yeah, that's all, that's all I can say. It's just some of the best shit I've seen recently. Um, so, yeah. Not, again, not, not really related to the Josh podcast episode. I just thought I'd share what he's been up to lately. Um, the next episode was... Let's not forget now. Oh, it's fucking your cult boyfriend. I was just talking about him. Um, that's it's so good. I've heard um, from people that like they just love that. I mean, okay, not they just love that episode, but they like that episode. I've heard I've heard more compliments about that episode from people recently, and um, yeah, I mean, I I had a great time talking to him. He's a very interesting perspective. We uh, we get some great back and forth going, and some good probing, and yeah, always there for the probing. Uh, he's, he's so cool. Um, yeah, good episode. And then uh, the next episode is with Style and Substance, or Jay, which is the most heated episode, I'd say, in hindsight, where <laughs> there's a lot of tension back and forth. And I do feel like that comes from um, me being nervous just knowing their background in academic kind of film analysis and stuff like that being afraid that we would devolve into that, you know? Not devolve into that necessarily, shift into that, which I'm not comfortable with with my goals in this podcast. So there's just this kind of tension running through it. Um, but I had a great time recording with them. I feel like we get some fucking awesome points near the end, some awesome points. And, like, um, there's actually, like, there's more recordings from that episode where we just talk for like an hour afterwards about just weird shit, um, like just esoteric, really specific films and stuff like that. It was a, it was a great combo. I had a great evening that uh, that night, and um, yeah, they were they were awesome to talk to. So yeah, I, I had a great time filming that episode. 
And then the last episode with William Duryea, which... God, that guy's so cool. I love William Duryea. I kept following his Twitter posts since. We've had some short talks about... um. Ooh, Kanye West's new album, Donda, and stuff like that since. Um, but, man, I, I love what that guy's doing. I love what he's, his perspective. Look like that abstract art talk we have. Well, not even talk. The abstract art monologue he goes on, to which I respond, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Because <laughs> I'm so fucking off on that episode. I'm so... I cannot feel more regretful for... I. I mean, I don't know. Like, the episode turned out, I feel like, and at least I didn't step on his toes at all. But, man, I'm, like, I'm just fucking... I'm just there to say, yeah, 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 I agree, that's cool. <laughs> and, like, bring, like, some minimal points. Just because he's just... He's always off on some, like, next-level shit. He's always saying stuff where it's just like, man, I didn't think of that. That's awesome. Great, great guy, William Durier. Uh Again, another shout-out to... Um, Misery Loves Company, their little uh, live stream thing, which is so awesome to share the new authors. And of course, um, are you fucking serious? I can't. Misery Tourism! Misery Tourism! It's called Misery Tourism. I almost forgot what the site was called because of a dummy, and there's so many misery things related to, to William there, but yeah, Misery Tourism. Check it out. It's amazing. Great publications from great committed artists. Yeah. Yeah, so that's my little episode retrospective so far. Um, I guess I brought up Kanye West Donda. I can go into the weird arc I've had with that album over the past few months. Um, where, I mean, I've been a massive Kanye fan for a good while now. Like, I took a little bit of a break, but I'd say ever since December last year, I just went Omega Ham. Like, I've, I'd, I'd heard all his albums before. Um, I was always like a casual like I dig it I, Life of Pablo had always been like really cool to me um, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy was like the first rap album I ever heard um, 808s and Heartbreak was the first modern vinyl I'd ever bought Which uh, I still have It's actually one of the like limited original presses of it Which I found at a record store And I'm so proud of to, I'm proud of I fucking bought it Like what, what did I do to Whatever I like having it And it's awesome um, but yeah, ever since December last year, I just de like dived hard into Kanye. I've listened to everything I watched. I had, man, a big part of getting me through the last semester of school was I had a night where I just spent three hours with with some buds and we watched every single Kanye West music video and um, rated them. And I, I was just like the most inspired I had been in so long. Like that inspiration lasted for like actually months. Just the way his visual style and Sonic style developed. I was just like, oh my god, this this is all timer. Like this is, he's like an all timer artist. Like his absolute commitment to his own sensibility, the way he works with pop structures and like you know sounds, but then it makes this totally confessional, individual style out of it. It's just oh, yeah, I don't know. I had an amazing time going through his stuff, and I'm still insanely inspired by it. But then. All this stuff for Donda starts coming out, right? Like, you know, after I went through all, like, the Yandi leaks and all this, you know, all, all this stuff. Um, and I'm just like, oh, I'm excited. And then that first stream, um, I don't remember when it was, but, like, the first live stream he did on Apple Music. I went and signed up for my Apple Music free trial. And I sat down and with, with some friends, and we all muted on Discord, and we streamed the whole, uh, the, the whole first stream. And I was, like, vibing. And then there's that um, 
Never Abandon Your Family track, which isn't on the newly released version. And I got really, really emotional. And <laughs> I don't know what it was. I just got really into it. And uh, I was just, I was surviving so hard with that, that whole listening party. Like, like before and from that point on, it was just, I was just so in it. And then Jail came on, and I was just like, like, it, man, it hit, it hit so hard. And then afterwards, my friends, we all of a sudden, we're like, oh my god, what was that? That was awesome, holy shit. Um, and I know people didn't like that first listening party, but I was, I was so there for it. I was so there for it. And I remember going to, going into work the next day, just listening to the, to the, the recordings again, like from the, the listening party, and I was just like, fuck. Oh, I love this. Um, I had some reservations, some small reservations. Like, um, I, I wasn't... The way he used the sampling of his mom felt a little weird to me. Um, and, like, I mean, I, it didn't sound finished. Like, I knew that. I knew it wasn't finished, and it did feel a little short. Um, and then we fast forward to the next listening party, and... I, oh, man, I fucking... I was so pissed. I had some commitments with friends, and I couldn't watch it the night of... So I found a recording the next night, and I was in a fucking shitty headspace. I felt so bad that night. I don't know. I was just like, I was just feeling so gross and done with shit. And I threw on that live stream, um, which it also was giving me fucking being irsome to stream just because the the Twitch link was fucking buffering every two seconds for me, and I was trying to figure shit out. And I was, eventually, I found a recording of the stream, and I just watched it, and I was just on a fucking journey. I was on a fucking journey. I had, oh, it was like I mean that ending. When he fucking goes up the, what do you, what do you call it? Like, he's he's on the, in the harness, being lifted up while No Child Left Behind plays. I was just like, yeah, but he did it, but he did it. And that little that little setup he has with the bed and shit, and he's running around screaming at the phone. Like it was, I, I know that wasn't even part of the performance, but it was awesome. It was just I was just like, oh my god, and he made all the songs better. I, I eventually came to have a little bit of trouble with that track list. I didn't feel like the flow was quite right. I felt like there was a lot of just weird stops and stuff. I wasn't quite sold on the flow, but I really liked it. I mean, Jesus Lord. Jesus Lord, that song, when that hit. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Because St. Pablo had always been kind of my favorite Kanye song up to that point. And then, like, that's so clearly in that vein. And he's doing that shit. And I was like, oh, yeah. Fuck yes. Um, I was so into it. And the third, the third listening party, I was like, I get the album now. I'm so ready. Like, and I still wasn't sure it was finished because I had problems with the flow and some of the, the production of uh, the second listening party. I was like, this is going to be the culmination. This is going to be him bringing this all together and making um, like a life of Pablo on my beautiful dark space of fantasy. Like, this is him bringing it together and we finally see the grand vision. And then we got the third listening party. <laughs> Fucking Marilyn Manson steps out. I'm just like... Okay, okay. Um, then fucking Jay Z uh, isn't on jail. It's the baby, fucking the baby on jail. And I'm like, I, I, yeah, I can, I can see it. it okay, not gonna lie though, the verse, the verse killed. The baby brought it on that jail verse. I won't lie, but still, it was like, okay. And then, oh my god, I'm trying to figure out the chronology. I think. The I, I was kind of just like, okay, this is really weird. And then the fucking Gobgo Gabgalab. The Gobgo Gabgalab, a meme like fucking years old, me and my friends used to be obsessed with. It fucking comes on, and I'm just, I genuinely thought I, I w I'd entered a dream state. I was like, what? Is this fucking, did someone hack the stream? What's happening? 
and then the whole thing played and Kanye's just vibing and everyone else is like what the fuck oh my and speaking of which the, the fucking Ruga song GD Anthem he's the only one dancing no one else is vibing with the song he's the only one dancing why why did Ruga just play his own song it was like years old oh my god <laughs> then the fucking weird ass 24 music video which is actually is pretty good i like that music video but it was it was out of sync i think something it wasn't clicking right by the end and the weird fade out um and then fucking he lights himself on fire stands around for a few minutes and gets the hose down and then he remarries kim and i was at the end of that i was just like i just fuck it like i'm kind of split on it because in a way like the first and second listening party, I was, I was, there was no disconnect. I was just in it. I was emotionally invested, and it was this on the level, grounded emotional resonance. With the third listening party, you can't have that. There, it's, I mean, by the time the Globgo Gabgleb hits, I, I hate to be, I, I'm always such for a person, like, you know, don't run preconception, look past things. It was really hard for me to get back in it from that point, and he kept making weird production changes that sounded so weird. I I was just like, I don't know what to do, and I feel like I'm still in the state of like, because the if final Donda release, from what I can tell, is still pretty close to that setup, and I wasn't ready for it. The previous listening parties hadn't prepared me for it. So, I still haven't really even listened to the full studio release of Donda yet, which, I mean, I, I think is almost definitely going to be adjusted, especially since it's fucking clean. I'm just, this has been the, the most wild emotional arc. Um, something has brought me on a long while. It's a year of the snitch, and damn, were two promotional psychos I was really invested in, but they don't... They weren't... They didn't have the left-field turn the third listening party and final release did. I can say that for sure. Um, yeah, that's been a weird, weird arc. Oh, no, a personal thing with that, um, I mean, not necessarily personal, but something I worked on, um, right around the time of the listening party, so I was just so into Kanye, I really loved the live Sunday service tapes, where, like, you know, the tour he did around the time of Jesus is King with the Sunday service choir. I love those tapes. I still love those tapes. I really like choral music, um, and that was something I, ever since, um, I, I used to be part of like little, you know, small time music festivals. I, I mean, not really music festivals, but like, you know, little music competitions they'd had in like around like my middle school and high school. And like, cause I played piano, I'd kind of take, take a uh, part in them, uh, even in elementary school. And there'd always have choirs there. And I really liked how choirs sounded. I just loved that sound. But like, there's no canonized works that are choral, you know? Like, I don't know any still. But those Sunday service performances gave me a context and, like, a popular music, like, um, position on a way to listen to choir music. And I was so into it. I still I pump those tapes all the fucking time. The forum performance. The fucking, um, uh, the one he did uh, at Le Bain or whatever in Paris. Um, fucking so many great performances. Sun the, the Super Bowl Sunday one. Oh, man, there's so many great live performances. But people didn't seem to rep them that much. Oh, how could I forget the fucking Week 2 one? It's called Week 2. He has a lot, a choral rendition of or Ghost Town is on there with the extended version, which I think is kind of going viral on YouTube a bit, but still, like, that whole performance with the Will You Be There covers and shit. Oh, my God, it's so good. 
Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm just... I guess I guess so into those. Um, I thought I liked the sound maybe not more, but I liked it in a different way than I liked the studio Jesus King thing, which doesn't have a lot of that choir sound. It's something more cold and abstract and weird, and it's cool. It's so cool, but it's not the same sound. So I was like, what if I took these um, these tour performances and compiled an alternative Jesus is King um, that fits the sound? And um, that's what I did. And I, I, I put it together. I listened to every performance of every song and chose what I thought was the strongest performance of each song that would also work within this compilation. And I've done two different versions of it. Um, so it's called Jesus is Live. Um, and it's uploaded on a channel I have called Z2, which like Z space II, which you know is two. Um, and um, yeah, like you, if if you're interested, I have an audio version that I think are the best like sound performances, and a video version which I got from the live streams that have a few different performances and ways that it's structured, um, just to account for the fact that there's video. And so like I chose some performances that look better and all that stuff. Um, so yeah, those those two are available, and I, I hope you dig them because I had a really great time making them. And I did a similar thing with um, Vincent Gallo's live performances. I noticed, you know, it's not the most looked into thing because I know a lot of people fucking delve into every single aspect of Vincent Gallo like I do. Um, and yeah, I made a uh, an alternate version of his uh, studio album when using live performances. So check those out. It's a little little plug in there. Um, that uh, I think provide interesting alternative versions for exceptional studio albums. So uh, how about that? Uh, I think that's I think that's pretty much all all I got to go on. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning into the podcast and for uh, a very rambly episode, a very rambly episode indeed. Hopefully next episode, uh, I'll be able to find someone to get on this fucking podcast. Anyone you have ideas for, please, please, please comment them. Send them to me. I'm trying to find people. It's not easy. I want to find cool, unique, interesting perspectives. And um, I just, I, I'm trying to find ways, places to look. If you have any ideas, please comment them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I hope you guys have a nice few weeks before the next episode because I'm certain it'll be another few weeks and um have a nice goddamn day Yeah.